Hi, and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. In this episode, we're going to talk about the infamous British serial killer, born in Scotland, but killed in London. His name is Dennis Nilsson. So seeing as last week, I spoke to Samantha... Was it last week? Oh God! Yeah, three weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, yeah. Sorry, actually, we missed the week because it was Sam's birthday, so we decided to miss a week. So, seeing as I spoke to Samantha, Samantha said she owed me one, so this week was pretty good to have a week off, kind of research, and I left it up to Sam to do this one. Um, I kind of know this case. Um, I know little bits and pieces. I think I'd like to obviously know more, which is good. But yeah, I know bits, so I'll obviously jump in, but I'm going to sit back and relax and have you tell me a story. Oh, my pleasure. Right. His name was Dennis Nelson. He was born on the 23rd of November 1945 in Fraserburgh, which is a town in Aberdeenshire in Scotland. Where my granddad is from, just a fun fact. I'll mention that again yes. later. Yes. Oh my God, I can't my wait. my granddad is from there. Interesting. So, he was the middle child. He had a younger sister and an older brother. His dad was Norwegian and his mum was Scottish. Um, He didn't really know his dad. His dad was, you know, an alcoholic. He didn't have any interest, really, in the family. So, you know, he didn't have a close relationship with them or anything like that. And his mum and dad got divorced when he was very young. However, he was very, very close with his granddad, they absolutely adored each other. So they would go on long walks, they would they would chat, they would laugh together, they would just hang out. And he was kind of like a father figure, I would say. Um, however, his granddad, he was a really strict man and he had, you know, a bunch of morals. He was a strong Catholic, but they got on really well compared to his other siblings. So... It doesn't sound that bad, you know, it's not really the makings of a serial killer. He had kind of an okay childhood. However, at the age of five, his granddad passed away. Okay. So, you know, this is like, obviously you're young and this was a man he looked up to. He was really close with him, you know, his favourite person in the family. But this probably led to what was the first traumatic event to shape his life because his mum, she was a strict Catholic and insisted that he viewed the body before in the coffin. Um, but what he, is it with people asking kids to do that? I know. And especially you're five, six, seven, you know, it's like wait until you're older and you have your own choice if yeah, you want definitely. to see the body. And he was told, obviously, at this young age as well, it's like, oh, he's he's just asleep, you know, but he looked dead so this was his first view of a dead body there's, uh, yeah there's a difference of being asleep and dead but never mind. Mm-hmm. and it was your granddad he was so close to him and you know this kind of shook him because oh he's asleep i'll be waiting for him you know but days had gone by and obviously then he found out that he he actually died and that's just awful to put your kid through that anyway growing up he was a bit of a loner so you know he's seen a dead body he's a loner we're kind of you know putting together a case here him but he didn't get much attention as a child at all he resented his mum and his siblings because you know they were all kind of 
Pally, they got attention. His mum remarried. He had steps, brothers and sisters, you know. They all, they were all loving and he used to desire attention and he loved to be, you know, the centre of attention until his granddad died. And then whenever he got that attention that he used to desire, he'd just pull away. So he was completely kind of alone. He didn't really have many friends either. And he wasn't an awful schoolboy. He was just, you know, the usual quiet and got on with it. So in 1961, he enlisted in the British Army and okay. he became a cook. So, All right. which is good. He became, So he was about 16 years old when he joined the army, which is, I'd say, an average age to join the army, especially if, you know, you don't know what you want to do or you think, perfect, I'll, I'll go into the army, you know? Yeah, that's Espe- especially back then. Age anyway, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, and that's kind of the ages that they were recruiting for. So, so he joined the army, and he was a cook, and he also became a butcher in the army. So he learnt the butchering skills. Mm. Um, so take a note of that. You know, just write that down. Okay, he's got cracking Fra- butcher right skills. Okay, excellent. Um, so he he was in the army for. 11 years and he traveled you know he was in Aden Cyprus Berlin and he he was fine with it he loved it you know it was structure and he liked you know being in charge or having just a routine um, and he would get on with his fellow army friends <laughs> I don't know what you call excellent. them excellent <laughs> yeah he'd get on with them and they would get blackout drunk I, I suppose it's just his co-workers yeah yeah or colleagues or you know and they'd get blackout drunk practically every night and they would go and they'd muck about and they'd go and get prostitutes and stuff but Dennis didn't really enjoy that because throughout his life and his childhood he wasn't really sure what kind of his sexual orientation was he he thought he could have been gay he's you know he looked at males and he he was interested in them but it was never you know he never acted upon it until Mm -hmm. obviously he was in the army they were getting prostitutes and things they were so drunk and he did it just to fit in because he was yeah. he didn't, obviously back then as well if you were gay you got completely ridiculed and things mm-hmm. so he did that but a lot of the time as well he he kind of went oh I'm going back going back to the barracks you know what I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not up for this and sometimes he would get so blackout drunk he'd end up in one of his comrades beds um, mm-hmm. clothed though and he realized okay. that this can't happen often and I'm getting too drunk that I don't know what's happened. So he kind of toned it down a bit. And he was like, he got drunk, but then he acted more drunk than he was. So that he could, you know, hang on to his fellow colleagues and, you know, get close to them and lay in their bed and not do anything with them. Just act so drunk so that he could feel close to them. Mm-hmm. Another thing while in the army, because obviously he was there for 11 years, he was a photographer. He was very keen. Mm-hmm. He was an avid photographer and he'd ask all of his comrades to lie and pretend to be dead and they would just go along with it, you know. Mm-hmm. And the thing with that, looking back, obviously reading some things from, you know, later on psychiatry reports, yeah, it was kind of proof that photography, it was one thing that he could control and he loved being in control. So he could tell someone, right, you stand in this position, you go here, yeah, you go there. Definitely. And they did it because it's a photo. And then once he'd, so he'd have them developed and, you know, they were the kind of things, they were stable. They wouldn't change. So he would do that throughout the years. And also, this is quite a strange thing that I read. It kind of shows where 
things were maybe starting to go a bit wrong in his head or brain while serving mm. in the middle east he had a his fascination with corpses really began to grow and he would cover himself in talcum powder he'd blew his lips up like turn them blue and he'd masturbate while staring at his own image oh. or he would just kind of lie there and pretend to be dead and that's kind of when like love and death really began to overlap so you could probably bring it back to the fact he loved his granddad and saw him dead and you know it's completely it's traumatized him and turned his thoughts quite yeah no for sure so this is where it's beginning anyway after 11 years of service he left the army and he returned back to Fraserborough however he only lasted there for about five weeks into his childhood home so while he was home though he had a huge argument with his older brother and this right. was about homosexuality. So the family were around the TV and there was a programme and it was just, mm-hmm. you know, it was about homosexuality. And everyone there, apart from Dennis, he was like, they were all kind of disgusted by it or making fun of it, you know, laughing. And mm-hmm. they were just, they did not like what they were seeing. So Dennis, not saying like, oh, well, you know, I'm gay. He was just sticking up for them. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, like, it's completely, it's an okay thing. And, you know, his brother and thing, they were completely outraged by this. So his brother went to his mum. Mm-hmm. And these are, like, you know, people in their 20s. And his brother went to his mum and said, right, uh, Dennis is gay. And she was she was furious. She wasn't having it. So, you know, I, they didn't speak really at all since, since that argument. Dennis didn't speak to his brother. And that, the family kind of, it wasn't great so he left because of all of this he wasn't well comfortable and he was kind of searching more for the army routine again yeah. you know mm-hmm. because after being in it for so long and being in control and things he wanted some more of that so he decided to roll in the metropolitan police okay so he moved down to london in 1972 december 1972 and he lived in north london while he was there you know he was training in the police and during his downtime he became a regular in the London gay bars and he'd you know have one night stands and things and he was kind of well known but he wasn't there for really for the sex he was just there for the conversation and the kind of need to be wanted Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah I get you it turns out though that the police wasn't really for him the police force. Uh, one night he shone a torch into a parked car and he caught a gay couple in the act of intercourse. Oh my um, goodness. But he couldn't bring himself to arrest them. But that was required by law back in back in the seventies that oh, you have to arrest them. Yeah, because it was you know, it was very frowned upon, like hugely. However, he just couldn't do it. And he left in December nineteen seventy three. He resigned from the police force. He was like, I can't okay. do this anymore. So he was living at Nine Manstrom Road, North London. But he, after leaving the police force, you know, his wages were depleting. He was practically on the verge of poverty. And he was even forced to sell his general service medal, which he would have got from the army. So, you know, he was completely kind of on the breadline. So, you know, he was just like, right, that's it. I'm going to sign on for unemployment at the job centre. So he was going to go on and get these benefits. But during his interview, which I'm pretty sure happened to my mum back in the day. Oh, really? Yeah, she, well, Dennis as well, <laughs> was offered a job working for 
um, working for them as an interviewer uh, for employment. All right. So he then became a civil servant, and he oh, worked fun. in the yeah. So he worked in this job role until you know the future. Let's just say this was okay. his job for the rest of the time. He was you know all right allowed to have a job. Anyway, he wasn't like hugely popular popular with his co-workers and things he wasn't you know up for making friendships he was just you know there for the time being anyway by 1974 so he's now got a job and everything his practical his life was really just you know i'll go to work and then i'll go to the gay bars okay so this again though i've got to say remember it's not just for sex he was just Uh you know he was really wanting he just craved attention because as you know he didn't get when he was younger and one night, he met a man called David Gallican. Okay. And he went home with Nelson, you know, the usual stuff, and everything happened like that. And the next morning, he was, you know, completely obsessed. Nelson was practically in love with the guy. He went, why don't mm-hmm. we, you know, why don't we live together? You know, we'll set up a home. We'll even get a dog. You know, this is going to be great. Okay. I've got. One thousand pounds that I've been saving for a rainy day. Oh, and the reason a rainy, he had day. The, a rainy day fund is um, he had that one thousand pound because his father had actually passed away, and he had given money to each child, each child, which is very kind of nice of him considering that he didn't actually want anything to do with them whilst he was alive. Right. Yes. Anyway, he's got this money and fantastic. David was up for it. They mm-hmm. were, you know in love with each other and this is when they moved to 195 Melrose Avenue which is still in London but this address is you know it's an infamous address and you're gonna know why very soon you probably already know a few (laughs) reasons why anyway they were great they were happy for two years they bought a dog named Bleep you know it was a border collie don't know where they get Bleep from but (laughs) nice pet name okay and, you know, they would just hang out, they would do gardening together. And he even, I read that he affectionately named him, named David Twinkle, you know. They got on really well. Okay. <laughs> However, as the years and everything went on, the relationship began to fizzle out. You know, they just weren't really interested in each other. Because, mm. obviously, Dennis, he was controlling. He was like, oh, you don't need to get a job. I'll look after you. Oh, I'll do this. Mm-hmm. And, he was completely, I guess, you know, wanting the best for him, but like, no, this is this is how it's going, and this is what's happening. So it began to be like both of them were bringing in one night stands, they were bringing in other men, even a woman in one case. So you know, it was just right. completely disintegrating, and it fizzled out, and they broke up. So David he moved out, and this is where um, Dennis he he remained. He was completely, you know, obviously heartbroken, and he was like he was still craving for this attention and he didn't know what to do so he went back to the gay bars he was at work he was you know he wasn't doing much apart from if he was at home he was just completely drinking he was just you know drinking away his sorrows yeah so this was in 1978 like in the end of 1978 when um, he got broken up with and on December 30th 1978 after spending, you know, Christmas all alone and, you know, he just wasn't happy. This is when he decided to commit his first murder. Right. You know, to get over mm-hmm. his heartache, this is what he did. So he met his victim at a gay bar and he brought him home, you know, the usual. He had sex with them. And when we're, when he's um, 
recollecting all of these accounts though he thought the the victim was about 18 years old it turns out though his name was Stephen Holmes and he was only 14 years old at the time wow so Dennis's first victim was a 14 year old boy practically he strangled him it's crazy but and yeah I get he thought oh he was 18 but you know not the point um, he strangled him with a necktie until he was completely unconscious and then he drowned him in a bucket of water and then the thing is what he did with all of his victims was that because he was craving this attention and he just wanted to be loved and you know dead people they don't talk back to you you know yeah so he he bathed them after he killed them and stuff he bathed, bathed them he, they dress, he dressed them you know cut their hair you know looked after them um, for about a week until they started to decompose obviously really badly and the smell would be crazy but this is when he also kind of dabbled in a bit of necrophilia right so as i'm going on i know that kind of every story is practically the same but i just want to say that he in this house he murdered about 12 men so he strangled them he drowned them whether it be in a bucket of water or he drowned them in the bath you know and Mm -hmm. then he looked after them until they you know really started to decompose and then he put them under his floorboards so we're talking 12 men in the span of a few years so the first one was in 1978 and the 12th one was in 1981 the the floorboards you know it's a flat yeah they're not built for keeping bodies (laughs) so it was getting pretty tight you know yeah um, the thing, though, that he would do, because, you know, Butcher, remember, he, oh, would, yeah. he would cut them up to make space for them. He would put their organs and things just in bags behind the fence mm-hmm. of his house so foxes could get them. Foxes, rats, the lot, you know, because, you know, that hides the evidence. And he would also boil their heads in a pan, in a pot, should I say. Right. So he's practically cut them up into many pieces and, you know, he'd boil them during the night. So he'd get up halfway through the night, you know, change the temperatures and stuff. He completely, he knew what he was doing, you know. Mm -hmm. And one of these 12 victims was actually um, kind of a really strong, you know, muscly man. And he was like, oh... I can fight anyone and he also had a tattoo on his neck you know with like dotted lines saying cut here Mm -hmm. clearly though that didn't phase Dennis he he murdered them the exact same way you know he he strangled them and Mm -hmm. one kind of bit of irony he cut here on the tattoo on the neck um so you know he kind of got what the tattoo was meaning um, mm-hmm. Anyway, <clears throat> throughout the years, though, he was kind of in a dispute with his landlord and they were kind of arguing back and forth and things. So he was going to be told to, you know, evict the place. So he needed to find a new house. But what the landlord didn't know, and I'm surprised because the smell must have been atrocious when you're going in this house. There was bodies Yeah, under that's the what floor. I was thinking. And also the amount of limbs and things. He also had them in bags. He had them stored in his wardrobes. Like, there was dead body everywhere. And this is from a couple of years. So, you know, mm. the smell of decom- 
decomposition and everything. It's just crazy. So to get rid of this, he had a few bonfires throughout a few a few nights. He would do it during the night when people were sleeping, and he would roll up the bodies and the remains and stuff like he was carrying out a carpet, you know, just in case he did get caught. It was like, oh, he's just getting rid of old carpet. And he'd put them on in his back garden and he'd have a fire and he would also burn tires next to the fire because, you know, the smell of rubber is very distinct. It's really strong. So, you know, you kind of got away with burning dead, dead human flesh and tires. So, you know, that got rid of them. And it, it completely kind of disintegrated into the ground and he then moved away. So he moved to Muswell Hill which 23 Cranley Gardens. So that's still in London. And he moved there in October 1981. So the thing that's completely different with this house compared to the one that he just committed all these murders was that this was a top floor flat and it had no garden. So practically had nowhere to hide these bodies. Now, one thing that I want to say about Dennis is that he wanted to move here because he didn't want to kill anymore. Okay. He said he was blacking out. Some of the murders he doesn't even remember doing. It was like just a complete rage of emotion. Or, you know, he just completely went and blacked out. His brain doesn't remember it. He'd wake up in the morning and there'd be a dead body. You know, there'd be just a per- a man strangled to death. So he thought, great, this is a new start. I don't have anywhere I could hide bodies. So why would I want to kill someone? You know what I mean? Anyway, so he moved there in October 1981 and he met a student in a bar in Soho. And it was very nice. So you're thinking, okay, I thought you weren't going to be murdering anymore, but here we go. It was fine though. He lasted two months and in December 1981, this is where he then committed his first murder in this house so being a top four floor flat everything like that that just didn't stop him so the difference between this victim is that he was one of the few that was able to fight back you know you think okay this is great maybe this will be the end of it but no Nelson Nelson was completely just done with him and so he was determined this guy should die so he it was a huge struggle yeah. I guess no one heard, but either way, he killed him. He strangled him, drowned him. But he had to be completely dismembered. Because obviously you're in a flat, you can't hide things under the floorboards. Uh, people will start smelling things. You're surrounded by other other people. So, you know, you're, mm-hmm. compl- you're not on your own. You can't just get away with murder, <laughs> practically. Um, so... Again, he dismembered them way more than the people in the other house, you know. Yeah. They were just kind of chopped up and chucked away. These ones, he'd cut bits of their skin off. He would obviously put their heads in pots because, you know, the thing, it would all just kind of fall away like a slow-cooked chicken, shall we say. <laughs> and a slow-cooked fall, chicken. it just, you know, fall from the bone. Um, and he'd put parts of them in his cupboard again. And he also put parts of the bones and everything, you know, just in his bucket, in his bin, so that the bucket men would come and take them away because, you know, you don't, they, they're they not going to look in 
the bag they're just taking it to the landfill and once it's there it's completely hard to track down especially back yeah, definitely. in the 80s nowadays I guess if you've got a bag in your food bin or something there's more of a chance you'd get checked but bag in your food bin well yeah for the recycling <laughs> but anyway in the 80s that didn't exist so we completely got away with that one and he'd put bits of their skin and things throughout the days he would just you know flush them down the toilet put them down the drain you know, put them down the sink so that these would flush away. But he didn't put, obviously, huge chunks down because that's when you would start getting caught. Dennis went on to murder another two victims in this house. All of these victims were either homeless, they were drug addicts, they were just, you know, kind of not down and outs, but they were either looking for a good time. They had nowhere to really go. So most of them, they weren't going to be missed they weren't going to have a huge headhunt for them. People weren't going to be looking for them. So, for example, one of them, he was he was an addict and he was in Oxford Street. And so Dennis gave him a hamburger. You know, this is a homeless man and he's feeding them. And then he suggested that they go back to his place. And clearly, this man, he's homeless. He's filled with alcohol. He's got heroin you know he's just been offered food and a place to stay like I wouldn't blame him for for going there and feeling safe yeah definitely but this was perfect for Dennis because he then strangled this man drowned him dismembered his body chucked him away and no one would have put in a missing persons report so that is how Dennis Nelson managed to kill at least 15 people wow and they were all male As I go on, you're going to think, oh, how many more bodies is there? But don't worry. He finally got caught. Finally. He finally got caught. So he was arrested on the 9th of February, 1983. And the reason he got caught was because the people around him, so his other, not flatmates. Yeah, I read that it was like a house. So it was like housemates. Yeah, practically that. So it's kind of like an old fashioned London house. He's in the top floor. He's in the top floor flat, but it's, you know, one of the kind of big old houses. They, they have loads of them nowadays and they've been like p- partitioned into different flats. So it's not like you can go into other people's. There's a hallway and things and doors, but you don't yeah. live together. But it's just a, a house that's been made into a flat. So they were complaining that they had blocked drains. Right. OK, so the day before he got caught, kind of like a maintenance guy, he got called out to just check the drainage and things like that and they found outside of of 23 Cranley Gardens so this was in the drains outside and it was blocked so they found what looked suspiciously like human flesh now it could have been you know chicken or anything like that but the maintenance man he called his supervisor and he suggested that they call the police so the police got you know, they got the, the remains or what they expected was remains and that they then get them tested and they'll go back again and they'll look on the at first light the next day. So the next morning, the police returned, but they noticed that the drain cover was in a different position. So clearly someone has moved it and they, they've been looking out. So this makes you even more suspicious because the thing with this is that if this drain was outside, and it was blocked. That in no way means that there's going to be a huge report. There's a murderer 
in this house yeah because the drains outside it could be someone trying to frame them it could be you know drainage from other houses so it wouldn't completely connect to the residents in 23 Cranley Gardens however now that clearly Dennis has moved the drainage and he's removed kind of you know the flesh and things so that he didn't get caught just screams murder the police report came back and it turns out it looked there was three little bones and they looked to be from like a human knuckle and there was also three bits of flesh tiny bits of flesh and it's crazy because the police report managed to say that it was flesh from the neck and that this is a murder because someone has been strangled and the oh. reason that they saw that is because they had, you know, the, the strangulation wounds on this tiny bit of flesh. Which is crazy. Like, amazing that they can sense, like, oh, I've got this tiny bit of flesh from a neck. Yeah. And there's a line or, you know, what, what you look for when someone's been strangled. So that's amazing. So that just screams murder again. And detec- the detective, Chief Inspector Peter J. after all of that had been confirmed, and they also confirmed that the human remains were from 23 Cranley Gardens because mm-hmm. of the smell that the other residents were were complaining about but also the fact that it, they could lead it to the top floor because it led from a side drain at the side of the house that only you know the top and middle floor person would use right but there was no one living in the middle floor at the time okay so you know this was Fantastic. So they on the 9th of February, they went up to Dennis's flat, knocked on the door and looked him straight in the eye and said, there's been remains, human remains found outside. Do you know anything about this? So Dennis looked him back in the eye and went, oh, oh my, you know, completely shocked. Playing oh the part. Oh my. Playing the part like, oh I wonder how that got there. But the detective then looked at him and said, stop messing me about and tell me where the rest of the body is. So you'd think, oh, this isn't going to go down. What's going to happen? But Dennis just calmly said, it's in two plastic bags in the wardrobe next door. I'll show you. So he completely just confessed to it. You know, he... Yeah. Anyway, so the police they they took these bags and they arrested they arrested Dennis because obviously at a brief glance they kind of confirmed he wasn't lying because you could see I did see um a photo of the wardrobes and they're like you know the brown old ones that scream seventies and eighties. I'm ones. sure my granny Glasgow had some. <laughs> like it was great. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, absolutely. So on his way to the station when they were in the car. He, he wasn't restrained or anything like that. He was just in the back of the police car. The police officers asked him, is it one body or two? Because it was two black bags, obviously. You think, oh, it, it could maybe be filled with two people. But yeah, do you know what his sense. answer was? Oh, about 15 or 16, since 1978. Stop it right now. Wait. <laughs> Imagine the police officers. They must have been like, like oh, right. Exactly. Their jaw must have been on the floor. <laughs> like, I would have stalled the car or something. Um, anyway, so he was obviously taken in for questioning. Sorry, no, I like how your reaction to finding out someone's killed those people is to stall your car. Well, I do it enough, so I may as well stall it when someone's murdered. Yeah, at least you've got a reason. <laughs> Dennis was taken into police custody. He was obviously taken in for questioning. And 
he was like practically obsessed with his crimes. He was like confessing everything like, to the police. Proud of them, kind of thing. So proud. He was like telling them every bit of information. He obviously he went through everybody that he had killed. He named most of them. Some of them he he didn't even have a name for. For example, you know the first victim. Um, yeah. They could only tell that he was about seventeen years old and Irish. Um, and the police actually didn't get a name for him until two thousand and six. Um, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Obviously, he was telling them everything, and he was like, "Right, I've killed a few people in this house, but I also lived in a different house, um, and I killed about twelve people there. I." burned them I put them under the floorboards and I then burned them in the back garden if you want to go and find them so obviously the police this was like a huge painstaking archaeological (laughs) excavation like you know this was a few years after so many burnt bodies in this backyard that they had to find tiny bits of bones and tiny bits of every evidence for all these people um, and they they obviously couldn't get everybody because yeah. you know the fire burned. So in the end, I believe they got about six. So he obviously he could be convicted for six murders. Um, but they managed to in two thousand six put together um, obviously DNA and everything, and they finally managed to get a name for Stephen Holmes. Um, and obviously they found out that he was only 14 at the time so that was crazy um so they obviously they dug up his garden well not his garden but his old garden found remains of the body the press or the british press were having an absolute field day but dennis was loving it you know proper serial killer material he was loving the attention um and obviously the press, they were going crazy because, you know, they learned he was a qualified butcher. He was an ex-policeman. He'd been in the army. You know, they were printing everything. And he's obviously, he's murdered or saying, he's not being proved, but he's saying he's murdered 15 people. Like, they're going crazy. And he is taking practically every article or anything that he reads or anything that the police say to him. And if they get a detail wrong... Yeah, he's correcting them or you know if the press say something like a headline and it's oh but that never happened or oh that word is wrong or I wouldn't say it happened like that you know he was he was loving the attention you know and he yeah was, that's so weird yeah exactly he was detailing exactly what to look for and where to look for it you know oh that's so weird it's just crazy um so his trial um and his confessions really you think it makes it pretty straightforward it went on for a few weeks and he was sentenced on the 4th of November 1983 so this is when his sentence took place but obviously before that you've got the jury you've got to tell like people to come up to their verdicts and throughout the whole trial he had psychologists reports um for example, there was at least three three main psychologists and they were throwing jargon at the jury, you know, and the whole court. Mm-hmm. They were just, you know, throwing all these things from psychology. And one of them said that he wasn't of a mental mind to have done be convicted for these killings. He didn't know he was doing them. And if you go back to what I said earlier, he did mention 
like before he moved house that he didn't want to commit these murders and he can't remember he blacks out one of the psychologists said that no he knew what he was doing he he's he's a murderer and the third psychologist was inconclusive he just couldn't really decide what was happening or what was kind of going on in his brain and another thing that i'll mention so obviously he murdered 15 people but what i've not mentioned is he actually had a few people that survived his attacks oh so he had there was a couple of witnesses shall we say okay and the main one so there was a few of them a couple of them though you know he would take them back to his house and strangle them and they'd fight back or you know they, they wouldn't die or he I don't know how he didn't manage to just kill them but they get in complete you know fist fights and everything and two of them went to the police and the police practically did nothing they didn't even write a report on it because it was two men completely drunk um, they were gay and okay. they were clearly just having having a lover's argument you know right so so it didn't really go it didn't nothing took away from that you know it was just like all right okay so he's just gonna strangle me but you're gonna do nothing about it um one thing though that I would say really kind of if I was in the jury this would proper well I would have been swayed anyway but yeah I was gonna say hold on (laughs) yeah I I would have thought he was guilty don't worry (laughs) the guy literally is saying he's guilty yes I know however what I will say though is he confessed to all of the murders but in the court, he said not guilty. He pleaded oh not guilty. And I'm like, you're really just making this jury go on and on and on. You know, just... I think that's the thing, though. He wants them to. Oh, yeah. He's loving it. He's loving the attention. Um, so one of the days in court, his, um, one of his victims that survived was a 21-year-old drag queen, Carl Stotter. Right. So, well, he wasn't 21 during the court, sorry. He was back in the day when he almost got murdered by uh, Dennis. He was 21 at the time. All right. And okay. obviously they met in a in a gay bar and things. And Dennis was like, oh, come back to my flat and things like that. And so they had a few drinks. They had, you know, all the usual. And Dennis said to Carl, before obviously going to sleep, he gave him a sleeping bag and he said, watch out for the sip. You might get caught in it. In the zip. In the zip. So I kind of understand. I've been in a sleeping bag, you know, like mm-hmm. the zips do my head in. They do get caught, but you don't, you don't personally get caught in it. You know what no, I mean? no. That's why I was like, what kind of sleeping bag is this? <laughs> yeah. What are you getting into? Yeah, um, I'm confused. But the thing is, so he was like, all right, whatever. They were completely drunk, you know, and they went to bed. But while Carl was sleeping... Um, Dennis, he tried to strangle him with the zip. Stop it. Because it had detached from the sleeping bag that they were were huddled in. So he was awake, like Carl was jolted awake when he found the zip tied, like wrapped tightly around his neck. And he thought, oh, I've become tangled in my sleeping bag. (laughs) Because, you know, that's what Dennis said. But it turns out he remembers that Dennis was actually behind him, kneeing him in the back and telling him to, like, you know, keep still. So clearly he's getting strangled. But 
Carl thought he was just trying to free him. You know, like, oh, I've been stuck in a sleeping bag. Dennis is going to try and steal him. So, anyway, obviously no air was going into his lungs. He was completely, like, blacking out. And he, he did black out. And, well, he passed out, should I say. So then, obviously, what Dennis does next, he tries to drown him in the bath. Nothing new there, you know. That's what he does to all of, the, all of his victims. Jesus. But he then had a change of heart because instead of killing him because, you know, he was unconscious, unconscious, he could still see that he was breathing. So he decided to, you know, give him, like, CPR, like the kiss of life. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he took him back into his bedroom. He wrapped him in blankets in front of a heater, you know, like proper trying mm-hmm. to keep this man alive after trying to kill him. I don't I know, know I'm confused. why. Like, it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, anyway, he was he was practically coming in and out of consciousness for about two days. And when Carl woke up, he was obviously, he believed that Dennis was trying to help him. He, That's he crazy, didn't, isn't it? Yeah, he didn't have any kind of recollection of what was happening. There was, he obviously had blood, um, burst blood vessels in his face and water in his lungs. Um, He also had cuts to his neck. (sighs) But in a way, like, obviously, he's kind of been saved. But Carl went to the police about two weeks later. But the police didn't take him seriously. You know, just again, another lover's affair. So this was completely for years. Carl was, you know, he really didn't know what was what was happening to him. He had no recollection mm-hmm. of the night, just in and out of consciousness. Did I get saved or what happened to me? But then one night it just clicked and someone, he had heard something or he had seen Dennis in the news and everything came back to him. Like he remembered that night. No he was way. like, yeah, he was like, holy shit, you know, like. I know we forget things, but in traumas, I'm I'm guessing like if it's a huge trauma, your brain, there's a part of your brain that kind of completely hides it or gets rid of it until, you know, the worst timing, really. Mm -hmm. So he was up on the stand um, and he obviously told the story. Finally, you know, people were finally listening to him. Um, So he survived a traumatic experience. He's still alive, um, but he suffers from, you know, depression and everything like that because of this and he also said i wish he just killed me i wish yeah, he didn't, I get I wish it, he didn't bring me back to life which is just crazy like to imagine going through that um anyway even because of all of this like you know you've had your testimonials you've had the evidence put towards you you've got these three psychiatrists you know using all of this fancy wording even during the summing up, you know how the judge at the end of the trial, he'll do like he'll sum up actually what's happened because, you know, they can talk forever and ever. And you've just kind of mm-hmm. got to get to the conclusion and, you know, tell the point. Mm-hmm. He, he said to the jury, he was like, even because of all this psychiatric jargon. I will tell you that a mind can be evil without being abnormal. So yeah. he even told the jury this. So I'm guessing, you know, he was kind of already thinking, right, this man's guilty. Anyway, on November 3rd, 1983, 
the jury were unable to reach a unanimous verdict. So, you know, there was people in that courtroom that believed this man was not guilty. Um, Wow. Which, I I don't know how, I guess you'd have to be there to to find out. But, like, I don't know once you've put forward the cases and he's been talking and... um, Anyway, obviously, though, I must say this wasn't for um, 15 murders. This was only for guilty on, like, six accounts of murder, okay? So this was the whole kind of trial was for six accounts of murder. Anyway, on November the 4th, 1983, the judge agreed to accept a majority verdict. And they delivered a verdict of guilty. On Thank all goodness. I was starting to worry you were going to tell me this guy had got off. I was getting confused. I was waiting for just, you know, the right moment to tell you he's still alive. Thank you so much. Killing. Um, but no, no, thankfully, he was guilty on all six counts of murder. And the judge sentenced him to life in prison without eligibility for parole for at least 25 years. Okay, so he was in prison and things. And... Dennis actually died in prison. He died oh, in really? 2018, so a couple of years ago. Um, it was due, I think he was getting an operation for blood clots, and he just, obviously it didn't go well. Um, in a few articles and things online, there's all these headlines like, oh, he died alone. He was, you know, this. He was just in his own kind of dirt, and he just died. But you know what? Shit happens. Shit does happen. Mm-hmm. That's the story of Dennis. Yeah, because I'd heard about Dennis Nielsen, but like I didn't know a lot. My granddad used to babysit him. No way. Way. Oh, I love that so much. I don't know. Why. Yeah, like obviously Fraser were a, a small place, so yeah, I used to babysit him, and like so that's what we always talk about him, and like I knew about the whole kind of the bodies and the dreams, but I didn't actually know much about him, so that was very interesting. Does your granddad like? Does he have any stories about? I don't think so. I think because obviously it was babysitting, so he was really young, and my granddad wasn't that much older. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like he doesn't really remember anything about him. But I was like, that's so weird, isn't it? Claim to fame. Yeah, to right. <laughs> yeah, to right. Sell the story of the sun. But, <laughs> yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? I just, mm-hmm. I think there's been that comparison before as well to Dahmer, isn't there? And I just. Obviously, there's no yeah. proof that he ate them. I don't think he did. But it is just that horrible thing of, like... You could kind of all say it stemmed from him seeing his granddad's dead body. Yeah, there's a lot of things it can stem from. Uh-huh. But the thing is, it's like, he wasn't... Well, obviously, you know, he saw a dead body at a young age and things. But your stereotypical serial killer has either been, like being brought, born with abuse like they've been hated you know they've mm-hmm. been boners, there's something there's they've got a lot of hatred but at the same time I get he loved attention but he didn't get attention and he saw yeah. his body so those could be triggers but I just I don't know where it would really properly come from to do it so many times and like mm-hmm. to the fact they weren't just deaths you know he cut them up he strangled them he kept them there, he mm-hmm. was a necrophiliac as well like you know no definitely it's a very weird one this case I think it is quite a bizarre and it's not as known now I don't think but yeah the childhood trauma one's an interesting one I think that's probably where it came from to be honest like 
I'd like to think that people aren't born evil and there's something changes them that way. And I think for him, it's the only thing I can think makes sense. Yeah, no, I'm with you there. And it's just to think if maybe someone had done something differently, what would have happened? 